Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are just disillusioned. Our email address is ogc at accessradio.biz, biz is spelled B-I-Z, and check out our Facebook page as well, Off Grid Christianity. On today's Off Grid Christianity is a gentleman who grew up on a cattle ranch and ended up getting a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. I'm sure there's a joke there somewhere. Our guest likes to combine life coaching and counselling with outdoor adventure sports. He also finds time to be a co-host on a popular American podcast and also finds time to do loads of other things. But what exactly is a life coach? What is it like to be part of a cattle ranch family? What is family and marriage therapy? gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Grid Christianity our guest today, Carl Rice. Carl, good afternoon to you, sir. How are you doing? Good, good afternoon, Martin. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. Well, if you can say that afterwards, I'll be really pleased. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We'll see where this goes. I'm excited. <laughs> exactly. Let's see where it goes indeed, sir. If you're sitting comfortably, then I've got five questions to start off with. Are you sitting comfortably, okay. sir? I'm ready. Here we go, then. Question one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask him questions, who would it be? I would have to create my own inkling. So I would want to invite Rob Bell, Simon Sinek, and Brene Brown to a pub and do some serious thought exploration. Now, this is interesting. Rob Bell. Are we talking about Pastor Rob Bell? We are talking about former pastor Rob Bell, yes. Wow. Okay. The other two names, you have to refresh me, says politely. Oh, absolutely. So Simon Sinek is a leading thought provoker in the United States. He works with a lot of CEOs and large corporations on understanding what it means to live a wholehearted life and how to find those things in your life that drive you, that bring you purpose, that bring you passion. And so he has been a content creator, a public speaker, an executive coach for almost 20 years now. Oh, wow. And the other person? And Brene Brown is one of the leading researchers in the world. And she made a name for herself by studying shame. So she was the lead researcher in the world on shame for a significant period of time. And her her uh, TED Talk is one of the most watched TED Talks in history. Okay. For those that don't know what a TED Talk is, what's a TED Talk then? A TED Talk is inspirational ideas. So people who are leading, leading voices in their industry, mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for people to be able to access that content and be able to hear what some of the cutting edge innovations are depending on which industry or area of study. And so she has her PhD in clinical social work. And so that's kind of her background. And then she's been a teacher, professor, researcher, and now lead inspirational speaker all over the world. Wow. Sounds like a very interesting pub night if that happened. It would be a very interesting pub night, especially <laughs> since uh, there's a lot of different backgrounds between the three, and yeah. yet they all have a similar heart to be able to unpack what does it mean to live a wholehearted life in the world around you? Yes. And they come at it from very different angles. So it'd be absolutely incredible to be able to sit in a room with those three as they're going at it with these different ideas. You see, you're talking my language already because uh, the Inklings, for those who don't know, was the group of people uh, that used to meet every Tuesday and Thursday, I think it was, mm -hmm. in the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford. And it had mm -hmm. such luminaries as C.S. Lewis, Mr. Tolkien, and a few others. And the idea was that they go there and they would chat. Most probably a lot of it was theologically based, but obviously some of it was about work as well. And mm -hmm. yes, I would love to be there as well because I, I believe in things like Inklings. Certainly over here in England, I don't always like in America so much, but certainly in, in England, a lot of Christians can go to pubs afterwards and do just that sort of thing. Or maybe not after church. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, having said that, there are churches now that actually have been formed in a pub. So mm -hmm. I don't know what's like that in America. The idea has not caught on yet in the States. We're still struggling through that. But I am a firm believer that God wrote the recipe for Guinness. There's something divine about Guinness beer, a pint of Guinness, 
in a good conversation, there's something divinely orchestrated there. Mm. I don't know if you would agree with me or not on that one, but <laughs> I'm a real L man. Ah, uh, okay. But that's having fair, said that's that, <laughs> yeah, but having said that, I brew my own beer now as well. Ah, and, oh, yes. okay. And I do do a mean stout, I must admit. Ooh, all right. What, stout being what ingredient do you like to use in your stout? Like, what's your signature stout? It's a thing called the pinter. And basically, you okay. buy everything online, and you've got like a 10-pint keg. And then you throw mm-hmm. all the ingredients in, add water in, do this, do that, shake it here, shake it about. And then you then condition it, and then having brewed it and all that sort of stuff. And they do a thing called dark matter, which is just Ooh, okay. the most incredible stout you've ever tried. It is that good. And I then bottom mine as well. Although okay. t- technically they tell you not to because of fears of explosion. And uh, as something that the Brits have learned so much from America is how to sue anybody. You know, 30 years ago, <laughs> it wouldn't have happened, but it seems that that's the in thing now. So yeah, so many disclaimers. Oh my gosh. So. <laughs> <laughs> the longer you brew it and the longer you condition it, mm-hmm. the better. Put it in the fridge as cold as possible so that all the yeast and everything else can settle to the bottom. And then, ah. but then you see, when you've done that, what are you going to do with the yeast? You only make bread out of it. That's what you use it for. Ooh, it's called the truck. man, you are talking my language, sir. Well, you'll just have to come over here and we'll do a live, a live podcast whilst I share to make beer. How's that? Done. <laughs> <laughs> Question two. Who's your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable, please, Carl? My favorite biblical story actually is Hosea 2. So Hosea chapter 2, there is a just a beautiful relational story that's outlined that has been incredibly meaningful to me. God has used it a lot in my life and in the lives of people around me. But the idea behind it, the heart behind it is, is that at one point in my life, I was running after a lot of, let's say, uh, counterfeit forms of life. And there was a period where in Hosea 2, it talks about how God will hem in the path. So he'll block off that path to where you can no longer pursue those counterfeit forms of life that you've run to the end of them. And you've seen that they are, they're no longer going to fill that space in your heart. And in that dialogue, he talks about how in those days, I will allure them to the desert and I will make the valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. And both working in the mental health field and then in my own journey, the ability to make the valley of trouble into a doorway of hope is an absolutely incredible story to me. That's a great, great conversation piece alone, isn't it? Wow. That, that, can, that can be thrown into your Inklings meeting when you get those <laughs> other right. people there. That's, that's really good. You talk about Hosea. Yeah. Going back about 30 years ago, there was an animated film. It only lasted about 30 minutes, and it was about a detective called O'Shea, uh, and it was how he's off to find his wife. And, of course, you take O'Shea and take the letters, it spells Hosea. Uh-huh. And so it's like a, a private eye detective version of uh, the, the story of, uh, of Hosea. Yeah, very clever. Thank you. Question three. Now, if you want to be prime minister of the UK, you can be, but if you'd rather be president of the USA, the choice is yours. So what are you going to go for? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know which one would be the tougher job, honestly. <laughs> uh, well, stick with, stick with what you know. Go for the President of USA, then, and you could change any law or impose a new law. What would it be, please, Mr. President? Mr. President would say that anyone serving in federal or state government would be no longer allowed to write policy or change laws of an industry that you have never worked in. Oh, So if you don't have real life experience in being in the trenches in that industry, you should not be writing policy for it. Wow, that's really good. Do you get it passed? (laughs) No, because there'd be a lot of people out of a job. (laughs) (laughs) At least here in the States, there would be. Yeah, That's a great one. I'm just trying to think, what would I be able to talk about then if I was prime minister using that, that rule? Yeah, it wouldn't be good, would it? But no, that's made me think. Thank you very much indeed. Good one. Question four. Outside of family events, Kyle, what has been your most enjoyable day out to date, please? Oof. This one I had to go back and forth on. I had an opportunity to go and do a men's fly fishing retreat up at a cabin that my family owns. Mm-hmm. And there was one evening that where there were six guys from all over the United States and 
The sun was setting. The lake was perfectly flat. The trout are jumping. We're grilling steaks. We're smoking cigars and we're eating or we're drinking really good beer. And the wind wasn't blowing, which is not a common thing in Wyoming. It was a glorious night. There was amazing conversation. We all limited out on fish that night. And it, it was just one of those thin yeah. spaces. It was a thin space. Yes. The gap between heaven and earth. Yes. Yes. It was a one of those thin spots, like yeah. the Isle of Iona. <laughs> so. Thank you. Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment then, Carl? <laughs> I went back and forth on this. There's been quite a few, but one of the ones that always stands out to me was I was a younger gentleman and I was over doing a study abroad in Australia and thought I was going to be really cool. There was actually two very attractive Australian ladies that I wanted to approach. Well, I had just gotten done surfing and didn't realize that there's this situation where when you get rolled by a wave, sometimes the water gets forced up into your nose so yes. much that it will randomly drain. Oh, it's horrible. Um, and so I go into a conversation, start a conversation with these two ladies, and seawater and snot and all kinds of fun things just starts draining out of my face. And the conversation was over, and they walked away, and there was uh, no going forward with that conversation. So that was a that was a fun one. Yeah. Well, in fact, you're from, uh, where are you actually from originally? I'm originally from, well, that's hard to say, honestly, Martin, because we moved around so much, but I would say Wyoming is probably what I would say is my original place. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know much about the United States of America, but I'm pretty sure Wyoming's landlocked. So for you to go surfing, that's some big deal in its first place, isn't it? It is, yes. Well, but my mom's whole side of the family lives in Central Valley, California. Ah, so we did spend quite a bit of time on the coast. Ah, so. right. Well, talking of your parents, I just say right at the very beginning, and thank you for those answers, by the way. I yeah. just say right at the very beginning uh, that you grew up on a cattle ranch. Now, mm -hmm. an American that you know who interviewed, he said he grew up on a vineyard. So immediately I was saying, oh, great. Let's talk about wine then, you know, and <laughs> I got this blank expression coming back and, of course, realized eventually that a vineyard in America can also mean where you grow raisins. So, True. So with that bit of information, I'm assuming that a cattle ranch is what I think it is, isn't it? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Well, let me let me give you a snapshot of it, and we'll see if this is what falls into your category Please. of a cattle ranch. So my family does two different things. We have a what's called a yearling operation where we buy calves at between 300 and 350 pounds, right. and we raise them. So they spend a winter in our feed yard, our grow yard, and then they spend the summer out in pasture. And then we sell them to the people that are going to eventually slaughter them and take them to supermarkets. And that's a year-long process, hence why it's called a yearling operation. Right. So that's the beef side of the production. Mm -hmm. And then my dad also does purebred Black Angus breeding. And so we have a cow-calf operation anywhere from between 90 to 300 head of cows that we breed for, for genetics primarily. Genetics, what do you mean? So the idea is to be able to have a 32-inch ribeye that is completely and solely based off, off of genetics. So no, no growth hormones, no antibiotics, that it's solely out of the quality of the breed of cattle oh. that you're getting this incredible meat, that it doesn't require you to use all of these enhancements or minerals or steroids or anything like that. Oh, wow. And how close are we to a 32-inch ribeye without any of those hormones? It's already happening. Oh, really? So, yep, it is already happening. Wow. So, so if you were ever out in Wyoming, I will hook you up with a very good steak. Well, it sounds as if I'm flying over <laughs> tomorrow, actually. You've already, you've already talked me into it. So, yes, for this particular instance, yes, I yeah. thought of John Wayne and <laughs> those kind of films. So I'm not too far <laughs> off then with what I think a Cataranch is. Not too far off. We do have fences now, whereas John Wayne was very much a open grazer. So they just traveled wherever they wanted with the herds of cattle. Now there's more fences, that type of thing. But my sister and I were actually backpacking through Scotland and we were up in the Northern Highlands mm -hmm. and we were at a local pub and we were talking to a cattle rancher in Scotland. And when I told him that our ranch was 
a little over 10,000 acres and we ran roughly between five to 7,000 head of cattle, that to him, he thought I was messing with him. He thought I was having a laugh because he had 20 head of cattle and like six acres of land. And that was a big, that was a big piece of property for him. How many acres did you say you had? A little over 10,000. So that's 20,000 football pitches. That's yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. He's six acres or, or 12 football pitches. Well, put that into comparison. So we're talking <laughs> a massive amount of land. So yes, I am a right. Land. Yeah, I, I've got my ideas correct on this case as to what a cattle ranch is. Brilliant. So what made you then want to become a pastor when you've got all this as opposed to pasture? Thank you. Uh-huh. Nice. I like it, Martin. All Thank right. You. Oh, that's a great question. Well, on my mom's side, I would be a fifth generation rancher. Mm. And on my dad's side, I would be a fourth generation rancher. And there's also been this really interesting blend of Christian ministry that has been weaved through our family's history. Mm-hmm. My dad actually went to school to be a minister. He went to seminary, then he got his master's degree in Christian counseling and decided that he wanted to be a pastor. Oh, wow. Which was an interesting story. He got into the institutional church and found out that it was not a great fit for him and transitioned back to ranching. And my dad and I have had a, let's just say a pretty tense relationship for a lot of years. So there, he has some mental health issues that essentially made it like living with an alcoholic, but there was no substances. So I lived in a constant fear of never knowing what dad I was going to get as well as the fear that it could change at a moment's notice without any kind of any kind of prompting whatsoever. And so lived in this constant state of hyper awareness of what's going to happen. How is, how is my dad going to interact with me today? So an example would be, we were out taking care of some cattle and I didn't do it in a certain way that he wanted it done. And so for 20 minutes, he just, screamed at me until his lungs were hoarse, yelling and all kinds of swear words, all, you know, the typical thing there, right? Well, then about 10 minutes later, he comes over to me and is trying to joke with me. And I pause him and I tell him, look, I, I hear what I heard what you said, but I'm in no place to be having a laugh with you right now. And he stops and kind of stands back and said, well, what are you talking about? We had a good conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. So in his mind, there was no memory of the fact that he was yelling at me for 20 minutes and I didn't say a word. The way that his mind translated it was we just had a good conversation. And so I grew up in this environment where our external masks that we showed the world were very well perfected, but the pain and anger and depression that was going on behind the mask was not great. And unfortunately, if you learn how to build masks really well, you tend to operate really well in religion. And so that was a mask that I was able to perfect. I could fine tune my outside perspective, my outside features, and yet they would have no idea what was going on inside of me. I had a mentor and friend and pastor that would always introduce me as this is Kyle Rice, the most on fire young man of God that I know. Little did he know that I had planned and had taken care of getting all the pieces together to attempt my own suicide. So he had no clue the level of anger, frustration, rage that was going on inside and hopelessness. Did your dad know about this? To a degree, to a degree. He now is a friend, a confidant, a person that I seek wisdom from that I enjoy being around. And Mm. that has taken almost 20 years of intensive work on both of our parts to be able to mend a relationship that when I left for college, I said, you better get it right with the other three because you're never going to see me again. Wow. So So. what made it change then? So you can have this relationship with your dad after all these years. (laughs) That that is, that's a long story, Martin. Well, we've got it, time. You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got any advert breaks to go to. You're okay. That's fair. So the one of the big healing spaces for me was going 
basically going to the opposite side of the world and having no connection to anyone that knew me, had any idea of who I was. And that was where I first was able to take a deep breath. I was in college. I was running track. I had a good scholarship. And in the middle of all of this, I was training to be a counselor, a school psychologist at the time. And I had a friend of mine that I was going to do an internship with basically tell me that if I was going to do this internship with them, that I had to go and do this 10-day counseling retreat. Well, come to find out, it was my supervisor at that time, my grandma and my mom, they were attempting to get me into counseling because they knew I wasn't doing well, but I refused to seek any kind of help. Yeah. Uh, because that that would compromise my mask. That would compromise the guards and the bunkers that I had created to protect myself. And so I went and did this counseling retreat called Healing for the Nations in Atlanta, Georgia, and absolutely got my world rocked. That was the first time that I felt truly seen in all my mess, all my imperfection, the the absolute disaster, and yet entirely and completely loved at the same time. And I mean, we're talking, Martin, that uh, a love that I can't put into words, but I can tell you that it shattered a four-year stint of major depressive disorder in 24 hours. That's the kind of power it had. Wow. And how many years had you been a Christian by this time? I would say that's when I became a Christian. Right. Because for me... I had grown up knowing about this God, but in in my mind, he was a deity in the clouds that had a really big stick and a very, very long list of perfectionistic behaviors that I yeah. had to try to meet yeah. in order to receive his love. Yeah, I knew how to operate in that game. I knew how to play that game, even though it was swiftly leading me to a place where I didn't know if I wanted to live anymore. I was decent at playing that game. And so to have a, as C.S. Lewis called it, a divine collision where your life collides with the Holy Spirit in such a way that no matter what route you choose to go, your life will never be the same again. And that's, that's where in that moment, that experience of love, that was my first introduction to a God that didn't have a checklist that I needed to fulfill in order to gain his approval but a God that saw me entirely and completely in my mess and loved me entirely and completely in that moment. Wow. See, I told you off air that we often go off on a different tangent. <laughs> and yep. <laughs> all I asked was about being a cattle rancher. And look, look we got that. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. So if I said to you then, being disillusioned, which is what I mentioned at the, the, the top mm. of the podcast, what do you think does that word disillusion mean to you prior to this? And what does disillusionment mean to you now as a, a qualified therapist? Hmm. Okay. That's a great question. Honestly, before I got into mental health, and I would say in the last probably 15 years, as I've been working with people who have been transitioning out of the institutional church, yeah, yeah, yeah. the idea or even the concept of disillusionment wasn't one that was even on my radar. And so the, the idea of questioning your belief system, unpacking that, processing it, and owning, owning the really good things, and then maybe distancing yourself from the things were, that were not healthy or toxic, that idea wasn't one that I really was aware of. It was happening, but it wasn't a, I couldn't have put language around what was actually happening as far as the disillusionment goes. I felt like... After I had had that intense experience with, with God at this counseling retreat, my thought was, okay, now what do I do, right? Because I, I, in that moment, I said, God, if I'm going to take my life, I'm going to end it. So if you want it, it's yours, whatever you want to do with it. I, I don't care. And in my mind, though, that translated to either full-time ministry or pastor. Mm. And so in, in my head, that's where you had to go. And so that's, it was like, okay, I had this crazy encounter with a God that actually has the power to change mental health, that actually has the power to change deep life pain, that has the ability to bind up the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. So 
how do I help other people access that? And for me, the only route that I knew was through the institutional church. That was the the original on-ramp that I knew of. Hmm. And yet over time, I I would say that it wasn't that for me, I don't think that God is not still using traditional Sunday morning gatherings because I very much think that he still uses that as a catalyst to engage his beloved in relationship. Mm. But in my mind and, and what I really wrestled with was I also saw God pursuing the hearts of the people that he loved in a lot of other contexts and a lot of other places. And I had to wrestle with what is what does that even mean? And then I spent a little bit of time as a pastor in pastoral internship at a mega church in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a look behind the curtain that kind of solidified some of the question marks that I had about the institutional church. When the lead pastor pulls up in his limited edition Porsche and parks in a handicapped spot and he has his <gasps> three aspiring female models that are his personal attendants have his coffee and his list ready for him. They escort him to his green room. He comes out and does his talk. And then he goes back into the green room, goes back to his Porsche and drives away. I saw a little bit different snapshot of what institutional church could possibly be. Nothing wrong with that, is there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Some would say he's living the life. (laughs) Some would say he made it. Yeah, that had it been an Aston Martin or a Morgan, I would have happily accepted that. <laughs> now, I know what you mean on that. And that just creates even more being disillusioned, I would have thought. Yeah. yeah. So what did you do about it? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, that's how I actually got connected with our mutual friend, Wayne, is I was at the time I was training to be a therapist and I was telling my supervisor about how I was failing at this pastoral internship and how I didn't want to be a part. If that was what Christianity was, I wasn't interested in doing that. And she hands me this book called, So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. I read it and it completely disrupted my world because it's like, okay, that just put words and language to what's been going on in my heart that I wasn't able to verbalize. And yet... Now what do I do? Because I moved from Spain, a big leadership ministry position that I was doing in Spain, to do this pastoral internship in Los Angeles. And now I want nothing to do with organized institutional Christianity. So now what do I do? And I talked to a mutual, a good friend of mine, and he happened to comment, by the way, Kyle, the author that wrote that book only lives about 30 minutes from you in Los Angeles. And he reached out to Wayne and Wayne and I met up for barbecue. And Wayne was a, I would say he was a catalyst in a lot of ways and a champion Mm. to the life that I'm currently living today, which is a life that genuinely believes that we have a living and active God that offers genuine, true, abundant, wholehearted life. And that he's very much in the process of drawing people into that, inviting people into that space in a lot of creative ways. So for me, that's, I use teaching, I use therapy, I use outdoor adventure sports as a way to create space for people to come together. And then I get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do what he does best. And that's draw people's heart to him, introduce them to a life that they actually would want to enjoy and actually want to take part in. And for those that are saying, who's this Wayne bloke? His name's Wayne Jacobson. And if you go back a few episodes, you'll find uh, an amazing <laughs> podcast. I had the privilege of listening to Wayne on it. And he opens up and shares so much stuff as to what was going on behind closed doors in his family life only a year ago. One of the most powerful podcasts I've ever had the privilege of doing. So thank you for that. Now, yeah. here's an interesting thing, because on one of the previous questions, it was if you could be a president for the day, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And you basically were saying that, you know, if you're going to create a law, unless you've been involved in it, work-wise, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. So in light of your background, good sir, and what you've shared, forget mm-hmm. not so much the cataranching, but having suicidal thoughts and then just completely fed up with the church, mm-hmm. how much of that was a motivation to say, do you know what? I think I could become a good therapist. 
I, for me, it was more on the lines of, I want to be a caring heart and a listening ear to people that need it. Mm -hmm. I want to be a safe space for people. And the training that I had seen and that I had been given in more of a traditional institutional church setting, unfortunately, did not give me the tools that I felt like I needed in order to be able to create those safe spaces for other people. And so that's why I pursued the master's degree in marriage and family therapy. But for me, people ask, well, what did you learn in your, in your master's degree? Mm. And my response always is, I learned how to listen better and to ask questions. For me, that's, that's how you create a safe space. And so to be able to be that, that safe space for others, to be able to offer what some absolutely incredible people throughout my life have offered me that were very instrumental in my survival and me even being here today to be able to have this conversation mm. with you has been where I've wanted to focus my life. If I can offer that to even just one other person, it'd be a life well lived. Yeah. And I've had the privilege of being able to walk that out with hundreds of people all over the world. And it, man, I don't think there's any greater privilege than exploring and being curious about what it means to live a wholehearted life in this world alongside of other people. Mm. You see, being a Brit, as you can tell by my accent, I'm uh-huh. <laughs> slightly away here. I suppose most British people have certainly in years gone by been very cynical of the Americans, as in, oh, they always have therapists, they have this and that and this and that. And gradually but slowly but surely, it's been making its way over here. And I would mm-hmm. say from about the year 2000 onwards, it was getting better that actually you could okay. announce you were going to a therapist, right? And not like, be publicly shunned. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. But you're now mentioning another thing as well, and that's a life coach. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard of that really. So tell me, what is a life coach and how long before we'll get life coaches over here in, in the UK? <laughs> well, my guess is that you already have them. You just okay. may not know that, that well, they're true. there. That's very true. So what's, what's a life coach, good sir? So in Los Angeles, everyone has their holy trifecta, which is their therapist, right. their life coach, and their right. personal trainer. Okay. So, those, <laughs> so in Los Angeles, it was your status symbol. That's one of the first opening questions they're going to ask you is like, who's your therapist? Or what are you learning in life coaching right now? Or what form of physical training do you espouse to? I mean, that was... That was one of the primary conversations right out of the gate. Right. A life coach, the best way that I have to describe it is life coaching came out of a desire to be able to utilize positive psychology in the world. Mm -hmm. So at least in the United States, there was a very medical model when it came to mental health. When you say the word mental health, people don't think of people that are healthy and that are thriving in the world. They think of people that are not doing well or are not functional and trying to bring them back to a space where they're able to at least function. Yeah, yeah. Well, life coaching came out of the idea of what would it look like to take people who are doing well, but really want to move into that space of full self-actualization, of full expression of who they are in the world, mm-hmm. what would it look like to help people move there? And so life coaching came out of that positive psychology movement. And essentially, it's very similar to a athletic coach, where they are coming alongside of someone and helping them perform better at whatever skill set they're looking for. So there are business coaches, there are executive coaches, there are marital coaches, there are life career oriented coaches, that type of thing. And so it's somebody who has a skill set and training to come alongside of you and help improve the specific area that you're wanting to really move forward in in a healthy way is the idea behind a life coach. Okay. I shall <laughs> watch with bated breath over here to see how <laughs> it's mentioned. And what's that that try word again? You the holy trifecta. The holy trifecta. Right. Come back to it in a few years' time. We'll see if, it's, <laughs> see if it's made its way over here. But then you've taken your therapy a, a, a step further because you look at marriage mm-hmm. as well, don't you? Mm-hmm. So yes. in light of what happened two or three years ago now when the world shut down for a few months. Mm-hmm. Yep. What have you seen with regard to marriage 
as regard to lockdown, what's happened as a consequence to that? Hmm. I would love to hear your feedback on what Western European culture is like in this regard. Hmm. But interesting. in the United States, we have over the last probably 15, 20 years, I would say specifically, we've seen a significant decrease in healthy family connections. So the idea of family, of relationship, of people that are walking alongside of you that are intentionally doing the best that they can to raise up young people or to um, the parent well, to live out a marriage that mutually encourages champions, espouses, cheerleads one another. Yeah, yeah. That idea is, is really struggling in the United States right now with some research pointing towards the divorce rate nearing 67%. So almost one, almost two out of three marriages in the United States are currently failing. And so there's a dialogue about what does it look like to develop a healthy, trusting relationship. And I have this conversation a lot with young people. So from that like 16 to 25 year old is the primary audience that I work with right now. And for example, a lot of my students that I work with, it is a social norm to be in a committed relationship with another person, a partner, and that partner to have a Rolodex of nude photos of other people that they're attracted to that may be in the same school building or the same town as the person that you're in a committed relationship with. And that's not seen as a relational obstacle whatsoever. When I talk with students about whether or not they have one person in their life that they know that they can trust, that they can let their guards down with, they can allow themselves to be seen, a significant number of my clients struggle to even point towards one person, let alone two or three or four or five people that would fall into that category of trust. And unfortunately, that that relational dynamic has infiltrated the marital relationship in the United States as well. And so the idea of committing to one another, of building those healthy, trusting relationships, of building relational and mental health fitness, where you actually have endurance to be able to navigate hard things together. You've built those deep relational foundations of trust. You still play well together. You're able to celebrate one another. You're able to encourage one another. Those basic relational foundational skills are becoming more and more of a rarity. And now Unfortunately, the the current generation in the United States that I work with on a regular basis, the idea of that type of relationship is very much outside of their schema of thought. Because for them, it's this idea of the golden-haired man or the golden-haired woman, meaning if they're not fulfilling me, if they're not meeting that space, then I have basically unlimited access through my phone, through social media, through other networking sources to be able to find that next great person. And yet the idea of even setting down and having a conversation like you and I are where there's curiosity, there's mutual respect, there's even eye contact that's being made. Mm -hmm. Those things are, are outside the norm. Those are skill sets that are having to be taught and mentored and encouraged and practiced instead of being things that have been trained up in the family system of origin. I want to take this in two different ways. That's okay. First Absolutely. Is how much of this has been exacerbated by COVID. And then hmm. the second one to look at if we threw the three letter word in beginning with G ending in D, I God, how much of the difference has that made to what you're discussing? So let's go for number one, first of all. Okay. In other words, you shared. And I thank you very much for that. How much of it has been exacerbated because of COVID? Unfortunately, I believe that COVID exponentially accelerated both the positive and the negative that were already taking place in our culture. 
Okay. And so I think there were some really, really good things in the United States. Anyway, there was a, a big trend calling 2020 the year of sight, the year of clarity, the year of perspective. Okay. And there was all of these thoughts and these ideas that 2020 was going to be this incredible year of perspective. Well, it was, but the pain, the, the perspective was um, rather painful mm. and a little brutal mm. because we, we got a hard look at where are we actually at? So some families really thrived when they, like, for example, for me, I got to be home when my daughter was taking her first steps. Uh, I got to be available to grow the, and share those memories. And my wife and I got to spend more concentrated time together. And so for us, yes, it was stressful because I was still providing remote-based counseling for my students. And I was having students that that came from families that were looked up to in the school district as the idealistic family. And now they're getting a divorce that families were falling apart. Parents were leaving. Alcoholism was coming up. Abuse was increasing. All of these things were skyrocketing. So the, the, the cracks or the strengths in the foundation basically came under a pretty epic magnifying glass during COVID. Yeah. So let's throw that three letter word in then God. Mm-hmm. How important was he in maybe bringing people out of this or, or not at all as far as what you've seen with all your counseling skills? Hmm. Bring people out of this how? What are you, yeah. I guess, what are you asking, Martin? I'm asking with regard to COVID in particular, because I think that has caused so much mental health that we might not realise how bad it is currently, but in years to yeah. come, we'll then realise. Uh, and how people, therefore, uh, have maybe realized you need to cling on to something or in this case someone and Mm -hmm. god turns up and pulls them out how often have you seen Mm -hmm. that happen Hmm. it's been really intriguing to see at least in i'm going to speak for the community of people that i'm connected with yeah yeah it's been very intriguing to watch how their interaction with who this idea or who this person is called god Yes, because before a lot of a lot of the people that I was connected to, community, etc., they leaned very, very hard on the Sunday morning gathering experience. Yes, that was that was what they pressed into. That was in their minds that was a a staple for their relationship with God and furthering that relationship. Yes, and yet as COVID happened and and communities looked at connecting with one another or how to connect with one another, churches were. In our area, churches would set up these large mega billboard things and they would project an image of the pastor up onto this billboard thing. And that's how they would continue to do church services is everybody sitting in their car watching a Megatron um, screen of somebody teaching. And there was no relational aspect of it. There was no conversation. There was no community connection. And yet in the midst of that, there was this grassroots underlying movement that was taking place where people were starting to connect with one another in ways that they hadn't seen in a really long time because they weren't allowed to meet in large groups. They weren't allowed to come to those, those traditional programs that had been set up for them. But the deep, and I would say God-authored longing for human connection, specifically in-person human connection, drew people together to have conversations that I think were instrumental in helping people engage with a new way to relate with this idea of God, this incredible being called God that they, I would say, had taken for granted because they had it programmed, because they had a paid professional that was standing up in front of them and speaking and telling them how they were supposed to live their lives now they're in the world without that and they're really having to wrestle with is this god living and active and real is he still relevant in the world that i'm in today and the level of connection and exploration and curiosity and deepening of their relationships with god man it flourished in a lot of ways in the communities that i've been connected to has it almost been like a a reset button for people to start again as a a Christian. Yes, in a lot of ways, I would say. And and it's interesting because in the United States, so 
in Western Europe, mm. they're a, a post-Christian society, right? So yeah. that you have been outside of those norms for a while. The yes. United States has been really struggling through and wrestling with this idea of a post-Christian society for probably the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. In my mind and, and through the conversations that I'm having with people, this new awakening, this, this movement inside of the remnant has actually, I think, authored people who genuinely can stand on this relationship, that the relationship that they now have with God, with Jesus, with their heavenly father, it has substance. It's been put to the test and it's been seen to actually be able to withstand. And they've had to own it themselves. There isn't anybody else that's yeah. offering it to them. There isn't anybody else that's supporting them in it. They've had to own it themselves. They've had to experientially connect with an intimacy and a divine relationship that that often they paid somebody else to tell them about on a Sunday morning. Brian Houston, in the podcast I did with him, I think episode 16, 17, this is a, a, a classic one whereby we're going on nicely and then whoosh, off on another tangent. And what, yep. you're, what you are saying here, I think, is how we described it on his podcast as dying to self, whereby you might have been a Christian all these years, going to church, yeah. yep. but there's just something that, in your words, which I actually really, really like, all of a sudden you actually have to own the problem. You have to own it. Yeah. And that owning it makes you find out who Jesus really is. Maybe we could write yeah. a book about that. Maybe call it the show. Forgiveness. Just a thought. Or maybe not. <laughs> you get someone to co-author it, it'd be easier, wouldn't it? But I think this is what you're saying. So yeah. please tell me what you, having gone through what you've already shared, what yeah. dying to self actually means to you, please, sir. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Let's see where this tangent goes, yeah. Martin. Hmm. For me, in the last three years, probably the deepest expression of dying to self. So very much finding out that my ways of getting through life have not been working out. That the counterfeits that I've been leaning hard on that haven't been his full and abundant life are falling apart. And that's being a dad. Okay. I have I have never had a more clear and at times blunt mirror to the areas where I feel like I'm living out life well and the air the blind spots that I had no idea were there. When you espouse to try to encourage and champion a young person's life who is dependent on you in ways that nobody other and no other person ever will be, man, it unearths that in a whole other way. So for example, I view myself as being a, a very safe and gracious person for my clients. Mm -hmm. And as I stepped into parenthood, one of the things that I had to take a very brutal and honest look at is I am not very gracious towards myself. And as a result, I'm not very gracious towards the people that are closest to me. Mm -hmm. The deep lines of perfectionism, of drive, of I have to get it right, those things those vows inside of me, those places inside of me that I said, no, I have to be this way. Those have been unveiled in a whole new way when I've tried to be a parent. That when I, when I watch my three-year-old respond to me in ways that, that remind me very much of, the, of those moments in my childhood where I said, I will never be like blank to my kid. Mm -hmm. to my child to the my children if i ever have children in the future and then to watch those same characteristics or some of those same behaviors start to surface and to watch my daughter even just this morning my daughter was having a really hard morning and we were in the car heading to preschool and she's screaming at the top of her lungs and in response, I tried to be calm and tried to talk her down and tried to redirect and none of those things worked. And then I just lost it and yelled at the top of my lungs, just stop. And I saw the look on her face, the, the look of fear, the look of, of heartbreak, mm -hmm. and it shattered me. It just shattered me and my heart just melted and it was like, Lord, this can't stand. 
this is not who I want to be to my daughter. And this is not who I want to be in the world. And over the last year specifically, there's been a, a really deep exploration for me of it's okay to be a mess. Because one of the ways that I, and it's deep rooted, both from my family of origin through the faith systems that I grew up mm -hmm. in, the need for perfection, the need for getting it right, there wasn't space to have a mistake. There wasn't space to be messy. There wasn't space to, to get it wrong and to laugh about it. And man, that is a awful way to live. And I found myself being, in some regards, being able to hold space and compassion for my clients. But, but then when push came to shove, was I offering that to myself? Was I offering that to the people that were the closest to me? And how was I able or was I even capable of offering that to my clients versus my family or myself? So it's been, honestly, it's been a very allowing father to take me into this idea of it's okay to be a mess and to laugh about it. It's okay to get things wrong and to laugh about it, that yeah. your value is not up for grabs if you make a mistake. And that's, that's a deep rooted one that I thought I had made some pretty decent progress on. And then I became a dad. <laughs> oh, I, hear that. I, hear that. I just got this vision of your three-year-old. Is she now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Getting to preschool and going to see her therapist saying, you never believe what my dad said, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so just in case that happened, you know, what do you think yeah. the therapist would say to, to your three-year-old daughter? Like what happened in the car? Mm. I think she would say, L, your daddy's human. He loves you deeply. And he's still very much in process. That his desire is to do the work, to press into the hard spaces, to explore his own heartaches and heartbreaks that may still be lingering in order to be able to offer you a different way of relating with him. Because for me, I... I pulled over the car and paused and just apologized to Elle. Yeah. And then when we got out to the, when we got to her preschool, I got her out of her car seat and she just gave me this huge, huge hug and a kiss on the cheek. And, and her response was, daddy, you're the best. And like, I mean, what do you say to that, Martin? Like, when you know you've just blown it and your three-year-old daughter looks at you with tears in her eyes as she's giving you this huge hug and she's got this cute little ponytail and she says, Daddy, you're the best. I mean, the first thought that went through my mind was, Lord, <laughs> I don't know how I'm worthy of this. Yeah. I don't know how to honor the, the level of trust that you've placed in my hands to parent this absolutely incredible young lady. Yeah. I mean, honestly, forget the fact that I am a specialist in marriage and family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like my training, my experience, my over a decade of working with clients out the window <laughs> and right in the trenches, living it up alongside of my daughter, alongside of my wife in this space of you're probably going to need a therapist because of some of the things that I've done, L, um, because I'm not perfect. But I hope and I'm willing to commit to you to be a dad that's willing to do the hard work, to press into his own things so that that he lives out a lifestyle of moving towards that space of growth and healing in life and giving her permission to be a mess too and creating that safe space to be a mess with her. See, what's so good is that you are just being totally honest and upfront, okay? And it just goes to prove that you might think if you have a therapist yourself, that that therapist most probably is the greatest person behind closed doors. <laughs> it doesn't actually happen that way. And you don't have to watch Frasier. And I know it's only a TV series, but you get the gist. Get the gist. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. For those that are listening then, who may or may not have a therapist, but can identify with you know suicidal thoughts mm -hmm. and blowing up every so often you know i can hold my hand up on that big time let's put the three letter word in then mm. what do you think god is saying in all of this and it's also especially after covid mm. 
I want to introduce you to a life of rest, love, and play. If I could sum up the the invitation that I have seen Father offering myself and the greater community that I'm connected to, it's an invitation into a life of rest, love, and play in the midst of chaos, in the midst of broken trust, in the midst of mess. What does it mean to be able to connect with that? What does it mean to live in that and not live in fear? Wow, what a great answer. As you must probably guess, guessed by my kind of way that my brain works, I'm thinking what you're saying is God is offering you a Mars bar because over yeah. here in the UK, <laughs> over here in the UK, the punchline was a Mars a day helps you work, rest, and play. Really? Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. I had no idea. That okay. Back in the sixties and seventies and eighties. No a way. Mars a day helps you work, rest, and play. Mm. Discuss. Yeah. No. I, I just. <laughs> I guess I want to ask you a question, Martin. What has rest, love, and play look like in the context of your relationship with Father as it's been growing? A mess. How so? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll come on your <laughs> podcast and I'll discuss that. <laughs> All right. That's fair. That's fair. We can do that. <laughs> um, that's me uh, pulling a therapist on you and yeah. flipping it around on you a little bit. But... Yeah, that was very good. I almost acquiesced as well. <laughs> I'll tell you off fair. There you go. I'll tell you off fair. But uh, no, I know what you're saying, but uh, I want you to answer it, please. One of the things that that rest, for me, rest, love, and play has looked like is in the States, and I don't know what it was like in Europe, but in the States, the conversation about fear in both mainstream media and social media, you have these growing divides the isolation, the group siloing, all of these things that are intentionally making money off of isolating, distancing, and disconnecting people. I mean, for the first time in recorded history in the United States, the age group of 10 to 25 is reporting more loneliness than the group of 65 plus. Hmm. First time in recorded history in the United States has that actually happened. And the idea of being able to rest with who you are, to be at peace and to enjoy that, to own that, that's one of the really interesting conversations that both myself and and honestly the the people that I work with have been really trying to sort out. Because if you are living in a place where there's constant 24-hour access to fear, it's not a place that you're able to breathe very easily in. No. And so what does it look like to, to step into a space where you know that you are in a dependent relationship with a God that is very much active in living and protecting your heart? doesn't mean you're not going through suffering. It doesn't mean that you're not going through challenges or you're facing adversity, but that you're not doing it alone and you're doing it in relationship with somebody so much bigger than you can ever fathom. And there's this, there's this hope that comes out of seeing him walk through challenge after challenge after challenge and joy after joy after joy. There's that relational context that gets built between us and father that creates the the byproduct byproduct of that is this sense of rest that I may not know what's going on. I may not have the details or the answers. I may not be able to answer the question of why, but what I can and do place my hope in is that there is a way through that, that moves towards a greater expression of life and wholeheartedness in the world that I'm able to connect with, an experience of love that surpasses all understanding. Yeah, yeah. Because when we were chatting to Wayne, he introduced me to this word, the duns, which are, mm-hmm. is a movement in America whereby people say, oh, look, I'm just done with going to church. They're not yes. exactly done with God, but not at all. They're done with going to church. So, yeah. And I just looked at the time, it's way over time. So I'm going to have to pull in the reins. But in the last couple of minutes, if you could sum up, please. To those that are really feeling about being just fed up with church or fed up with this and that or whatever, yeah. and think, oh, yeah, I could be one of these done members. 
what would you say to them? What do you think God's going to be saying to them? Hmm. That I will be incredibly faithful to unravel the brand of Christianity from the life of Christ. That the, unfortunately, that the brand, the imposter, that the often well-intended misrepresentation of what it means to engage with the kingdom, I'm going to untangle that for you. I'm going to connect you with an experience of truth and life and healing that your heart has always longed for, but has gotten twisted, disrupted, or corrupted in ways that do not represent me well, that do not express the invitation that I gave my life to offer to the world. And to take that first step to help mm -hmm. your life being unraveled so yeah. you can build it up again and give you that Mars bar, what have they got to do? It's okay to be in the weeds. It's okay to be in the weeds. It's okay to check in with your heart and follow those inklings, those nudges, those gut instincts that are stirring inside of you that you're not sure you can trust and you're not sure where they come from. It's okay to not get it right every time. But if you learn, if you start to learn to trust your heart and trust the strength that's inside of you, there will be a, a way through the forest that you may not have ever seen before. And it might look very different than your preconceived ideas of what it means to be in relationship with God. Or, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, they talk about energy. They talk about aura. They talk about the universe. And yet they're having a hard time getting away from this idea that they're experiencing this connection with love or they're finding hope where there shouldn't be hope or they're they're encountering healing in ways that they never thought were possible. And yet they're not sure who to espouse that to. Because mm. if they point it towards themselves, I know for me anyway, I know I'm not big enough to heal myself. I know I'm not, I don't have what it takes to overcome some of the life obstacles that I've had to walk through in my life. And to be able to encounter this, hmm, this undeniable thread that's woven into the tapestry of the universe that I would say is the signature and fingerprint of God, that it's okay for to let him rewrite that. It's okay to question. It's okay to explore. It's okay to be curious. God has never once been intimidated by our curiosity, our anger, our frustration, our despair. That's never once intimidated him. It's never once caused him to shy away from us. So to summarize then, I like the idea about the weeds. Stay in the weeds, but try and find a way out. But, <laughs> but don't do it straight away, as in, yeah. as if it's the most important thing you've got to do. Let God guide you to find a way out of those weeds. Would I be right Yeah. That? Yeah, absolutely. I said right at the very beginning, young sir, that we'd be going off on a different tangent. I think we have. I think we have. It's been brilliant, Kyle. Thank you so much for, for talking. Also, if people go onto the website and try and find you or looking on Google, yeah. there are quite a few Kyle Rices. There are. Yeah. So my website is inspiredepic.com. Inspiredepic.com. Yep. Inspiredepic.com is is one easy way to connect with me, or you can find me on Livestream or The God Journey. So those are two other websites. The God Journey is the podcast that I connect with. Or if you Google Kyle Rice Therapist Nebraska, you will find my work email. <laughs> so there are other Kyle Rices who do something similar to what you're doing as well, which is very interesting. That is true. <laughs> well... All it remains for me to say is uh, for you to tell me who your Christian hero is, please, Carl. This is the final question. And obviously, we'd like someone who is preferably dead so we can't be accused two years afterwards. Oh, look what happened to him or her. <laughs> I've got a feeling. I'm going to get out on a limb here that he could be a member of the Inklings. I could be wrong, but we'll find out. So, Carl Rice, who is your Christian hero, please? Very close. It's actually William Wilberforce. Oh, well... About 100 years out, but yes, carry on, sir. <laughs> uh, tell, tell me right, more. <laughs> right country. Right country. Um, yeah, yeah. For me, I have 
always deeply appreciated the the life that William Wilberforce lived. And I, I obviously probably don't know the details of his life to the degree as someone native to England and having him as a part of your culture and your history. But for me, it's a man who had multifaceted interests. So not only was he in government, but he was in philanthropy, he was in education. He was very curious about things, but he was deeply, deeply passionate and committed. He was a man that that had ideals and values and was had an idea, had a had a belief that he was willing to give his life to and to give his life for. And for me, like to be to fight for something for 20 years and three days before your death, see it come to fulfillment. That's incredible to me. That's tenacity. That, in my mind, is an expression of a life well lived even though I'm sure not a perfect life by any means, but a life that was well lived. And so for me, that's, I've always really, really connected with his story in regards to, he didn't use the traditional church as a means of bringing kingdom into the world, but he brought truth. He brought power. He brought authority into politics. He brought it in and granted he was still connected to the church, but but he wasn't a vicar that was standing behind a pulpit that was espousing these things. He was standing in parliament, bringing kingdom truth into the parliament space or into a philanthropy space. And I just absolutely love that. That's something that has been really encouraging and something that has marked to me, given almost in some regards, given me permission to be okay, not being in vocational ministry, but catalyzing the passions and the thing, interests that I have as a way of bringing kingdom into the world around me. Wow, great answer. Thank you very much indeed. Carl Rice, it's been an amazing time. I hope uh, other people have been inspired by what you've been saying and that they will be able to contact you and encourage you or maybe even ask you questions for what they're going through as well. It's been yeah, sheer, any, sheer joy. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And any follow-up email, if they want to reach out to me, just kylerice at me, M-E dot com is my email address. Okay. So that's a great way for people to get a hold of me. And Carl spelled K-Y-L-E. Correct. Yep. Carl, thank you so much, sir. It's been brilliant. God bless.